Hey everybody, welcome to episode 108 of the 2QB Experience Podcast. Uh, my name is Greg and I'm your host. And joining me on this episode, a special guest, uh, first time on the show, Jordan McNamara. He's the author of The Analytics of Dynasty, a new ebook that's coming out uh, very soon, if, it, if not already. Um, he also co-hosts the Under the Helmet Dynasty Podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at McNamara Dynasty. Jordan, did I get it all? Is there anything else you want to plug before we move on here? No, you, you pretty much got it all. Uh, the book's actually out. It's for sale with the with the bad weather on the country this week. I figured I would get it out a couple days earlier so that way anyone stuck inside could you know could spend a couple days getting ahead. But yeah, you can get the book. It's uh, analytics the analytics of dynasty. You can get it at analyticsofdynasty dot com. Um, I have two pricing options. Uh, you know, we can. It's thirty dollars, uh, and it's it's one hundred and forty three pages. I think is what it came out to be in total. Um, there's a lot of different strategies, a lot of different some metrics that we'll probably talk about tonight that I use to sort of capture different different values and stuff like that. And um, so you can get the book for thirty bucks, and if you want to get together one on one, I have an option for that as well as the book for fifty dollars. So yeah, you can get it analyticsofdynasty.com. Yeah, that's a really cool opportunity to uh, I, I've done a little bit of consulting work myself with draft day consultants. And I mean, you and I were talking a little bit before the show about how it's fun just to talk to other people about their teams and their process and their approach. And a, a lot of the times like those folks are coming to us for answers. But I, I'll be honest, like I learn stuff from other people that I've done consulting for. Have you had that same experience? Oh, yeah. I it's funny because I. I yeah, like you get to meet people and you get to do different things and talk to different people. And uh, totally, I've learned stuff from talking to people that I wouldn't have thought of. I put stuff in my book that were like questions they had or things that they brought to me and were like, Here, here's what I do. And then I went and tested it. And I was like, that's a great idea. So, yeah, I mean, it is a it is not just a one way street for me. Those things are great. Like they're learning experiences for me. And then I, I can sort of incorporate it in how I talk to other folks and how I go about trades and negotiate. And it's yeah, it's a full it's a it's a give and take. It's great. It's a great experience. And so, listeners, once again, uh, the book is called The Analytics of Dynasty. You can find it at analyticsofdynasty.com. Jordan, give me like the one minute explanation of why you wanted to write this book. Like, what's the genesis of this project? So it actually it actually started in like about a year ago, and I wanted to get more into DFS. And so I started studying a whole bunch of DFS stats. Like I, I wanted to get like really in depth in sort of the statistics, and I like playing DFS, but I didn't feel like I had a good enough background in it of all the stats and the underlying you know hit rates and all those things. So I did a ton of studying on it, and I was I like kept like looking at different trends, and I was like, there's some dynasty stuff here. So I got my hands on basically 10 years of dynasty ADP data going back to 08. So basically my data goes between 2008 and 2017. And I was able to sort of draw out a lot of different findings in terms of uh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, to, some of the metrics that I came up with, like warp, which is wins over replacement player and a warp, which is adjusted wins over replacement player. And I looked at a lot of starter weeks and hit rates and all these things. And I, I found a lot of stuff and I found a lot of stuff that was really contrary to what what the the market would say and what sort of common dynasty strategies were. So I just started writing. I figured maybe it would be an article or a series of articles. And I started writing and maybe in like three or four weeks, it turned into being like 40 or 50 pages. And I was like, wow, I go, there's something here. And so I just decided to go with it and write a book. So it all started as a DFS project and it turned into a dynasty book. So I caught all, all different ranges of it. That's awesome, man. Give me give me a little bit more context about the data that you looked at because you you talk about ADP and we were also talking before the show about two quarterback ADP versus one quarterback ADP. Tell the listeners like what 
type of data you were mining? Like what's the standard, you know, league size here, um, roster size, and uh, just general construction of the leagues that you were mining for data? Yeah, so basically I looked at uh, Rotoviz had some historical data. You could go back to 08, and you could basically get startup data going back to 08. And what I did is I used all that data, and I, I was looking at sort of a lot of hit rates and, you know, what's it mean to be a sixth-round pick or what's it mean to be a tenth-round pick or who hits in those areas. And I just started looking at a lot of that stuff, and then I was able to overlay it with, you know, seasonal data, right, uh, how people finished in PPR, and I used a couple different scoring metrics in terms of uh, quarterbacks, so I looked at six-point quarterbacks and four-point quarterbacks, and so I looked at a lot of different ranges about how that was done, um, and the data that I really looked at, it was tough to get any further than really 20, 20 rounds, so basically 240 picks, it's tough to get anything really further than that in terms sure. of what the data was, Yeah. so that was really what I looked at in terms of that. There is some other stuff that I was able to see beyond that, but I didn't feel great about the conclusions that I found. Uh, outside of that range. So I was kind of confined to that range just with some hunches about later stuff. So, um, so yeah, I, I did, I did a lot of that. And, and like, I looked at a lot of draft history and I, I, you know, I have whole, I have a couple of chapters just basically breaking down stuff about draft pedigree uh, and how significant that is for different positions. And it sort of varies by position, but I think it's, it's different. And I think it focuses, if you, if you, Buy the book and read the book. I think it'll focus your process more on hitting more often and, and reducing your misses, which ultimately is, I think, what you're trying to do in dynasty football. And so to be clear, you are looking mostly at one quarterback leagues, correct? So I'm looking at one quarterback leagues. The, the, the worst part about this project is that there's no, and this is like we were talking about this offline, there's no good historical data for, for Superflex ADP. Um so it's just tough to really glean anything from that. But what I was able to do is, as I was sort of looking at positions more, um, and and I, in my looking at warp data, my wins over replacement metric, I was able to sort of identify some values and how how you go ahead and put put together quarterbacks. So while there's no market numbers for it, right? The ADP is measuring the market and how market feels about certain things. I was able to sort of look at production metrics and and get an idea of when you should sort of target those players uh in a startup draft when you have two qb or when you have super flex right you still get to see the relative market right you get to see yes. how quarterbacks stack up against each other it's just how they filter into the running backs wide receivers and tight ends that's going to change between those two different types of formats and i mean the other challenge with super flex i'll admit is that there isn't really a standard for it uh i mean I guess you might expect to see like a one QB, one super flex, two running backs, three wide receivers, a tight end, and a normal flex. But, you know, the number of bench spots is going to vary from league to league. Like you said, the data is only really going to help you down to maybe 15 or 20 rounds at most. So, I mean, depending upon what type of dynasty league you're playing in, I mean, what we're really going to care about for the most part is the stuff that happens at the top of the draft, right? Because that's what's going to impact your later picks. I mean, you're still going to try to mine value in those later rounds, but if you can avoid the landmines in the early rounds, that's probably where you're going to find the most value from something like this, from this sort of research, correct? Yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunities in the later rounds. Like, I, I think generally speaking, if you... I think people are overconfident in the decisions they make. So I think they're overconfident early in the draft. I think they're overconfident later in the draft. And so I was able to find places that I just, I think that positionally people are biased against efficient strategies. And there's just been this narrative in the marketplace, I think for years that basically wide receivers are safer than running backs. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think that that, 
that's true, especially outside of round five of a startup draft. Like, and, and again, when I'm saying when I'm saying round five of a startup draft, that's outside of the top sixty picks in in a start one league. So if the, if you're talking, you know, two QBs or or super flex, you know, that number moves down a little bit. But if I would start to look at, you know, once the cumulative number of receivers and running backs gets outside of sixty, right from there on, whatever whatever format your draft is, from there on. When people go wide receiver heavy in those, that range, that's a losing. I just think that's a losing strategy from from all the things I looked at. So, you know, I, I do think there's value later in the draft if you if you go about it right and and sort of identify the right types of profiles of players to pick instead of you know just trying to hit on individual players. Yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of where that you know wide receiver heavy bias came from was like a negativity bias related to injuries at the position, like. That is one place where wide receivers are more stable than running backs is they, they don't get hurt as often. You know, they don't take as big of hits. They don't take as many hits. And yes, there are going to be exceptions to all these rules, but I feel like that people overreacted to that when, when that data sort of came out however many years ago. And we're only now starting to kind of push back a little bit against zero RB. And there is still a time and a place for that sort of strategy in, you know, PPR formats, uh, you know, w- when the, the setting is correct. Now, in Dynasty, that's a, a different animal altogether, and, and I'm sure that you get into that in the book. Um, tell me a little bit more just kind of about the specs of the book, like how many chapters, how many sections, how many pages. Uh, g- give me a little bit more background as, as as far as, like, how much meat is on the on this bone, you know what I mean? Yeah, so in, in total, the document's 152 pages. Um, it is excuse me, 153 pages. There's some forewords, some table of contents and everything. Basically, the content of the book is 143 pages. And I sort of walk through it all. I, I, I just basically walk through it all in pieces, right? I, I And it's designed for everyone, right? If you've never played Dynasty Fantasy Football, this book is for you. If you're an expert in it, like, there, this book's for you too. Like, it's not, this isn't just a one-size-fits-all. There's stuff you can take from, from it, I think, for redraft, I think there's like, you know, I wouldn't market it to DFS people, but I think that there's DFS things in here that people can take from it and sort of the the types of players that hit and how they hit and sort of all of that. I think I think you can apply it to fantasy football in general. So give me I would an example that, of that with uh, with the DFS. Sorry to interrupt you, but um, no, I understand that that's probably not the focus of the book. So I don't feel too mm-hmm. bad trying to spoil that for, you know, the listeners here is like what from this book would help someone in DFS, for example? Well, I think I think there's a lot of a lot of the talk in I think draft pedigree is a huge deal at receiver, for instance. So when you get guys like Marquez Valdez Scantling, I'll just use him as a proxy for this. He you know, he's a day three pick and they hit really low, right? They hit really infrequently at for top twenty four seasons. They have, you know, on average they might finish with two or three starter weeks. Right. So if you're making a big investment in that type of profile in DFS, like that's a high risk strategy. And mm-hmm. so I know that there was a lot of there was a lot of buzz on him. Like he became a first round rookie picking in in dynasty drafts. And I thought that was out of control, <laughs> to be honest with you. And so I, I sort of look at that and I can sort of see like, hey, here's the history of the t- these types of players. And if you're right, they might have in a in a. If you're playing in, in a big GPP or a big tournament, right, they might have a high – it's a high-variance play, but the, the odds they hit for a starter week are really low. 
Um, so I would look at that. You know, I think that I think sometimes people get scared away at running back when these, you know, Damian Williams types or these other guys sure. um, get, you know, get a starter week. You know, a week is the starter on their team. You know, well, what's what's their upside? I actually think it's pretty high. And so one of the things that I really look at is like in terms of dynasty, I think measuring the season long like ranking of a player, the season long, you know, how they finish in, in terms of positions, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. So my, my metrics more look at it on an individualized, you know, week by week basis and then sort of my, my warp and my A warp sort of draw that out a little bit more in different they work a little bit in different ways. But I, I think when you look at all that, you'll see that like trying to hit on low pedigree guys, it's tough. They don't hit a hit frequently for for productive weeks. So to really go all in on them in terms of GPPs or anything like that, I think it's a cautionary. I really think it's something to to be cautious about. So let's look at the other side of that. Does that sort of high pedigree value in wide receivers make you more bullish on players like Amari Cooper and Sammy Watkins, even though they've been a little disappointing to own at times over the past few seasons? Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, like, you said that that at the the beginning that zero RB doesn't really make a ton of sense in dynasty. I actually think it does. Like if if I oh, was totally yeah, team, yeah sorry yeah. Yeah, go ahead no 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 and and like I think people get I think what I actually think now is the perfect time to go zero RB, and because running backs have been so I mean Todd Gurley's won people leagues Alvin Kamara's won people leagues, you know. Saquon Barkley, all of these guys, right? It's been so defining in terms of the running back, the high-end running backs hitting. Well, if you if you look at it though, that's the select few at the elite. There's been a ton of injury. There was a ton of injuries this year. And if you were on the flip side of that, right? If you had avoided, um, you know, if you had avoided Le'Veon Bell and Ron James Conner, I mean, that that's a three-win change. In in your team, right? Not taking the loss of Le'Veon Bell versus the gain of of James Conner, right? That's if for the person that took Le'Veon Bell and if I took James Conner, I gained three wins over that person this season. And that's crazy. But just that decision alone, that's that's the type of thing that's huge. So if you're going receiver early, like I, I put in my book that I think that if you hit on either Will Fuller or Sammy Watkins in round six of a startup draft this year, then then you've built your team right. As as the as your fourth wide receiver, so if if that's your wide receiver four in the sixth round, like you've you've done it right, and then from there on out, I would sort of transition away from the receiver position. So yeah, I I'm all on those guys, like like Fuller, um, Watkins, Cooper, and Corey Davis. Like they fit in a, a a high probability of hitting profile, and I think I think they're at a really reasonable cost right now. Yeah, that makes sense. And I let me clarify what my issue with zero RB is. And I, I kind of adhere to the strategy to some extent. I went on the Roto Underworld uh, radio show with Matt Kelly earlier this season, and I talked about how I ran kind of a, a modified zero RB strategy or like a closet zero RB strategy when I was drafting for the most part in 2018. My, my issue is people's strict adherence to this principle that they have to draft only wide receivers and tight ends for a certain number of rounds like i think that sort of mentality is bogus and damaging to your fantasy portfolio or profile or whatever you want to call it if you put that sort of blinder on to what you're going to do before you enter a draft i feel like you're doing it wrong does that make sense are you on board for that 
Oh, I, t- I, I think that totally makes sense. And so uh, one of the things I say all the time is I think cost is key in everything you do in life. And so if, if a guy like – you know, I, if a guy like Carryon Johnson is going to fall into the fourth round of a startup draft, right? That's a huge value. Um, I might not necessarily be aiming when I go into it to to get Carryon Johnson there, but if he falls into the fourth or fifth round of a startup draft, that's that's a great value. Um, you know, if he if if you're playing quarterback premium or or and he falls, you know, into the fifth or sixth round, that's probably the comparable the comparable region, right? Mm-hmm. I, I might not go into it with that, but but once you see a a profile like that fall to a, a, a good cost, it's a, it's a huge bargain, right? You have to be on that. So you have to be flexible. And I think cost is key with all of these decisions. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't like to adhere to a strict, rigid strategy. I like to go in with a plan. And what I, what I tell people in the book is if you go in with a plan, right, build your team backwards. Build it a couple different ways. You know, hey, here's what happens if I go two running backs in the first three rounds. Here's what happens if I go four running backs in the first five rounds or, or four receivers in the first five rounds, right? You just build these different types of builds, and, and you'll be able to identify how, how you can go about building your team. Um but yeah, I think. But generally speaking, I think the most efficient build is to get receiver. Basically, you know, if you're starting two, three, or four receivers, like, and if you have flexes, like, if you only have to start three receivers, I don't want to own six, seven, eight, nine receivers. Like, I want to make, I want to be lean and mean at receiver, and then be able to attack high upside running backs later on. So that's kind of the way that I build my team, and I think that that's the most efficient strategy, especially with all the data I looked at in my book. When you do that, this is kind of, I mean, you're echoing kind of what I do in redraft. And what you're doing is you're playing to or playing toward the current state of the NFL. There are a handful of, you know, high volume running backs who both run the ball and catch passes out of the backfield. Those guys are very valuable and they need to be, you know, valued appropriately in drafts. And then you have generally just a lot of spreading it out everywhere else, uh, including a wide receiver. Like the, the days of the stud wide receiver are. Not totally gone, but those stud wideouts are kind of on the same level as the stud running backs. So you kind of have to look at what the most like limited resources in the player pool are. And I think the the top of that food chain are those you know high end running backs. But then right after that, it's Julio Jones, it's Michael Thomas, it's those types of you know high volume receivers who are just going to not only crush the PPR scoring but also have touchdown opportunities as well. And there reaches a breaking point in every draft where you're deciding between, you know, the the sixth best running back and the best receiver. And that's when you actually have a choice to make. Right. And like you said, kind of having some sort of plan for what you're going to do when that situation arises helps. But in the moment, you still have to be able to make that decision and pull the trigger on the player who's ostensibly better. Right. You, you don't know for sure, but, you know, there is a higher percentage play one way or the other. Or we, we have to believe there is. And I, I think that's where. People kind of forget that, you know, having that that plan and having that draft strategy is great, but everything you do is going to be dictated by what everybody else in the draft is doing. You know, you can't just go in with your plan and stick to it. You have to adapt. You have to react to what other people are doing, whether you like it or not, especially if you're in the middle of of a draft order. Like if you're not near one of the turns, you really don't have that much agency to assert your will on the draft. You kind of have to read the room, what guys on each side of you are doing or gals and, you know, pick the appropriate players relative to your draft slot. And that's not always going to fit the plan that you had when you entered the draft. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And that's why I like to build multiple different ways to go about it. Hey, like, let's let's go into the plan like, 
you know, if I if I go in and it, it goes, if it breaks, everyone's going running back. Am I still going to be able to, right? I, I trust in myself to be able to find running backs later. And I think the data would back that up, right? And, and one of the things, like, you you look at it and, like, this is why I think that positional finishes are terrible metrics. Like, TJ Yeldon finished as running back, what, like 21 this year, I think it was. And he was a he w- he was a a league winner for for portions of the season when when yep. when Fournette was out right Latavius Murray the same way like there's there's a ton of hidden value in in the running back position because you will largely know like when you're taking backup running backs when you're taking Austin Eckler's or Matt Breida's or um you know Doug Martin's pre pre or you know preseason. Nick Chubb, all of these guys that didn't start the season going into the season were massive fantasy impacts. And so when you when you look at Carryon Johnson, another one, like all of like you don't need to go into the season saying, all right, here's my you know week twelve running back, right? You need to if you're starting you know if you're starting two running backs mandatory in a league, right? You need to figure out twenty six starter weeks to get you into the playoffs, right? You need two. Two different spots. You need to figure out how to fill in for 13 weeks, and they don't need to all be one person, right? Hopefully they are. Yep. You know, hopefully it's a Gurley or Barkley or whatever. But but more more likely, and especially in your flex spots, right? Latavius Murray was a great flex play for weeks this year because you knew he was going to be a, a a dozen touch a game guy at least, if not closer to 20. So all of those things, I think, really point towards. Uh, an efficiency that I don't think that common metrics really, really draw out in players. Yeah, it's a weekly game, yes. and people forget that all the time. And that's actually one of the great benefits of DFS, is DFS has kind of reminded us of that fact and taught us to be a little bit smarter about how we value these players over the course of the season, but relative to each individual week. I, I totally agree with you there. Uh, let's get back to what's specifically in the book. And you've mentioned uh, wins over replacement player or warp. Um, you, you actually sent me an excerpt from the book uh, that talked about that, uh, as well as the adjusted warp. And I'm curious, how do you think that warp is affected based upon league size because as we've already talked about each dynasty league is going to be a little different there are going to be more teams and some more like bigger rosters and others and so i guess with that in mind and, and looking at the data that you did you know a 20 round draft how would you kind of extrapolate that to be affected by you know say a deeper draft or a shallower draft does my question make sense yeah it does i think in your in your shallower drafts Right, the superstars matter more, right? So if you're only playing, you know, five skill guys, right, between, or, you know, f- between five running backs and receivers, I think your studs matter more. So I think that the top is going to, you know, the the warp date is going to be, uh, I think, up at the top, it's going to be a little bit, they're going to be higher. If you're playing in a deeper league, uh, and this is one thing too, like I got into this industry dynasty draft, it was over the summer at some point. And I traded down a couple times. Like I, I was just basically following the. I wanted to see if my data from my book could be implemented and sort of worked in. And so I did it, and I traded down a bunch, and I, I sort of went with, you know, I had like four or five receivers, and so at their deeper rosters, and I just rostered a ton of running backs. And you'd be surprised, like people at the in the when I was drafting was like, oh, you're punting year one, and I was like, just watch. <laughs> and I ended up. Like I didn't intend to compete for a championship, and like I didn't build. You know, I traded down out of getting. I think I had the 102, and I traded out of it, right? So I wasn't like I was trying to 
build a juggernaut in year one. I was more looking to year two, three, and four. But I had a highly efficient team. I had a lot of starting options on a on a weekly basis. And when you look at it, when a deeper league, all of those running backs, like you don't you don't appreciate it in when you're sitting in a draft room about how nice it'll be in week twelve when you have six different starting options at running back because you just draft a bunch of backups. But that happens. It happens a lot. And this year was a huge running back injury year. So I was I was really in on that type of strategy. So in a deeper league, I'm more – I think your studs matter a little bit less um, than in a in a shallower league. I think that the, the baseline for the leagues that I used, it was basically one quarterback. It was – you had to start one running back. You could – Start. You had three wide receivers, a tight end, a kicker, and a defense, and you started two flex players. Um, and it wasn't super flex, so you could start up three running backs, up to five receivers, basically. Um, so I thought it was. It wasn't a great. I don't think it was the perfect representation of the market, but I thought it was pretty fair in terms of what what I could get my hands on and what I could, um, you know, really year over year compare against each other to really work on the the warp data. Yeah, that makes sense. And I like that you brought up that idea of kind of hoarding a position and how, you know, the value of those studs goes up when the leagues are actually shallower. And that might be counterintuitive to some folks, but you when you really think about it, like this it's no no more apparent to me or it's it's definitely the most apparent to me at the tight end position where you know, for years and years, it was a people would try to talk you into drafting Rob Gronkowski in the first or second round because he represents this severe leverage over everyone else at that position. The problem is, is that there's a huge one. There's a huge opportunity cost with drafting him that high. That means you're not getting a stud wideout or a stud running back. And two, just because you you have a, an advantage right there at tight end over everybody else you're only playing one other owner per week. You know what I mean? Everybody else is still playing against each other and accumulating wins while you're sitting over in your corner with Rob Gronkowski, right? And so ultimately, all you're really trying to beat is the baseline, and you don't have to pay up to do that at tight end. And and I think that the one place where you might be more inclined to chase those high-end onesie position guys, uh, whether it be you know a one-quarterback league at quarterback or a tight end in most formats, is when you're in like maybe an eight-team league with like some of your work buddies or something. That's when you can actually pay up for Aaron Rodgers or for Travis Kelsey because you actually are separating yourself a little bit more because everybody's tight end is going to be pretty good and everybody's quarterback is going to be pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that like, and if you look at, like if you look at the, the so one of the best parts about Warp is you're able to draw out basically the, the wins that a player adds and and that the best part about it is it's position independent right you go by the positional baseline but it sort of puts all the positions on a single on a single grading system in terms of how important they are and if you look at like if you look at the the warp data and stuff for running backs like they're they're close to one, two wins over replacement the the one the, the first running back uh, the number one running back each season is basically on average about two wins over replacement over a replacement running back. At what at tight end it's only one, right? So that's twice as much impact from having the number one running back than having the number one uh, that number one tight end. So I think a lot of those positional things and and it's it's really the tight end position right now is super interesting because you get you basically have a phasing out of the old guard, right? If you look at Witten, Gates, and Tony Gonzalez, like between, 
and and my subset of years, which was 2008 to 2017, they accounted for 20% of the top 12 seasons. Like, just think about that. That's That's an incredible stat. And Tony Gonzalez didn't even play uh, some of those years. Um, So that's just a, it's a massive, it's the wild west in terms of some of that. And, so now you get the opportunity for guys like Kittle and some of these lower pedigree guys who historically haven't really hit, but there's more opportunity to really hit now because of, you know, Gronkowski's aging out and Graham's aging out. We're seeing a sort of uh, a total sea change at the position. Um, I, I am, I think, less inclined to pay up at that position because I think there's other opportunities and looking at guys like bounce back guys like Eric Ebron and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting from a roster constructive construction standpoint, the quarterback and the, the tight end positions are, are really interesting. Give me an example player or two that really surprised you when you saw their warp or their adjusted warp, like which players shocked you with either how good they rated or how poorly they rated. So one of the things that I found about when I looked at adjusted warp, like I wanted to be able to go back and look at like, remember a couple of years ago, D'Angelo Williams had this like huge, he had this huge season when Le'Veon Bell was hurt. Like yep. he, he just, he came in and had this huge season and basically like limited, you know, limited games, but had like massive games. Right. And I think it was the 2015 season. And I, I sort of, I looked at specifically him in this type of player. And if you looked at his season long finish, like it wasn't, might've been in the thirties or in the forties, something like that. But if you looked at him on a warp or an a warp basis, particularly the a warp, which is basically the adjusted, which is the adjusted warp. And it, and it incorporates their starter, their starter rate, right? How often that they were actually started. So it identifies players that basically for one week or a couple weeks, they have a high starter rate and it's predominantly running backs that it draws the value out of. And he was like 21% higher just by incorporating his, his uh, starter rate. And like, that's hidden value, right? That's, that's value that you're not realizing by just looking at, at, at the seasonal finish. And I, I think that that's a huge instructive thing. And so, like, James Conner was a great example of a guy you were trying to do that with this year. Um, you know, if something happened to Bell, and I don't think anyone really predicted that what happened to Bell would, would happen, but it's a huge, like, that's a massive upside bet. Um, the TJ the Eldons of the world, like, those backup running backs, like, as a class, I think they're way undervalued. And so I, I'm, like, a huge proponent of loading up on them. Um, and one of the other things too, I think, is that the receiver position, if people get really engrossed with, you know, oh, this person's only a wide receiver two, or they're a low end wide receiver two more than a high end wide receiver two, that really doesn't matter all that much. Like the, the, the range in that area of the draft, in that area of seasonal finishes doesn't really have that big of an impact. And so I think that uh, that has really made me look more towards players like Brandon Cooks, who I think are are highly stable year over year. And you know what? They might have some some fluctuation week to week, but you largely know what you can project for them. And I think that that's a huge deal. So those are really the two types of players that I really look at, and I think they're they're undervalued. So when you say the type of receiver that Brandon Cooks is, are you talking about those kind of big play deep threat guys? Is that what you're indicating there? No, I'm more indicating the. I mean, he the past four years he's basically finished in the in the 
teens in wide receiver production, right? From a roster construction, team building perspective, that's a huge deal. And for me, like a lot of, a lot of what I would point to in the book is to, you know, you want to be stable at receiver. You want to have, you know, like I said, if you're only starting two or three receivers, like I only need four or five. And because Week by week, I'm not going to be able to really beat Brandon Cooks, right? It's it's really tough to beat a Brandon Cooks in terms of what his seasonal impact is going to be for you, uh, and and try to pick a week that oh I can start this guy over him. That's just tough to do. Uh, so I I don't really go that route, and I go more towards hoarding running backs. And Brandon Cooks allows me to do that because I don't need right. He's he's largely stable, right? I I know what I'm going to get out of him. He's got a long he's got a a long runway of productivity. He's in his mid twenties. He's done it for four years. I know who he is as a player and I, I have a pretty good projection on who he's going to be. And so that's a great, like that's a, to me, that's a highly undervalued profile because I, I, he's, he is a long-term stable asset at a position where that matters a ton in my roster construction. Okay, but so you're talking about year-over-year year stability, but when I think of Brandon Cooks, I kind of envision a player who week-to-week week is going to be kind of up and down, right? He's going to have some big splashy weeks. He's going to have some, you know, dud weeks where maybe instead of catching a 50-yard a bomb, he gets a pass interference call instead. I mean, you don't get any points for that in fantasy. And in general, those are kind of the types of receivers I tend to dislike, to be honest. I, I'm not really a big fan of the high variance, you know, Deshaun Jackson types. Now, with that said, I, I think that there is an argument to mix those guys into your profile of, you know, receiver depth, um, you know, to have a few like kind of PPR monster type players and have, you know, one or two of those big play type threats. And I, I agree that year to year consistency is definitely very appealing from a player like Cooks. But earlier in the episode, we talked uh, kind of at length about how you really need to be looking at like, especially the running back position week to week and trying to find value there it sounds like you're almost preaching the opposite at the wide receiver position is, is are, are you really kind of advocating for like a set it and forget it sort of situation where you're kind of just blindly plugging in Brandon cooks every week? I wouldn't necessarily put it that simply, but yes, <laughs> uh, that's, that's probably a different way. Yeah. I, I won't try and beat Brandon cooks on a weekly basis. And, and here's why one of the things that I would like point to in this is like, I, I think what you said in, and, and this is why, like, one of the reasons I wrote my book was because I think that there's a lot of things that are just accepted as, as gospel that are that are maybe less than true. And so, for instance, I did a poll in August, and it was um, – and you can actually find this article on my website, and the title of it is uh, Boom More Than Bust, Why – excuse me, it's the title is The Facts About – Brandon Cooks are contrarian and why narratives suck is, is the name of the article. Okay. And 62% of people uh, that I pulled said that Brandon Cooks was a uh, boomer bus wide receiver. Um, I found that super interesting because from, and the, this specific article looked at from 2015 to 2017. Um, if I were to update it, it's only going to make him look better because of how stable he's been. But there have been only five receivers that finished, um, he, he basically finished 15th or better in, at the receiver position. Only five other people could say that. Julio Jones, Antonio Brown, Jarvis Landry, Larry Fitzgerald, and Doug Baldwin. Okay, so that's a that's a highly stable year-over-year player. One thing that that I found, and when I look at when I look at starter starter weeks, people had this narrative about Larry Fitzgerald that was like, ooh, he was 
you know, he's super high floor, right? He's high floor. He's largely consistent. Um, Brandon Cooks had between 2016 and 2017, he had more starter weeks than Larry Fitzgerald, right? So people talk about, uh, you know, people talk about Brandon Cooks in a way that I don't know if it's a, you know, people look at him and think, oh, he's not a wide receiver one or he's small or whatever it is. I don't think the facts on him, like he finishes a top 24 receiver 54% of the time, right? That's, that's really good at the receiver position, right? There's only a couple of receivers that were better than him. Um, he was, he had more starter weeks than guys like AJ Green and Doug Baldwin, right? So when I look at all of those things, I just, I, I think that the, the narrative on Brandon Cooks was driving on his price to a point where it made him such a value across formats. And I just don't think that the fact that he's a boomer bus wide receiver is really borne out statistically. Yeah, I can see that to some extent. Now, I'm, I pulled up his game log for this season, and he has, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six weeks of double-digit standard scoring. Um, you put that in PPR, it's going to go up, obviously. But he did have a lot of weeks in that, like, six to ten point range. Uh, and believe it or not, like, that doesn't sound sexy, but that is pretty viable for most uh, wide receivers. And, and so I, I feel you. I, I, I see where you're coming from. But kind of getting back to that idea of you know, trying to mix and match the right running backs each week while maybe leaving in the same receivers. Like what would push you off of Brandon Cooks in a, you know, a week to week situation? Like, are you looking at cornerback wide receiver matchups or other factors that would maybe make you think, Hey, this is the week I'm going to bench Brandon Cooks. And here's why, like, does, what do you think about that? I think that there's times to do it, but I I don't think, I, I don't think I'm, uh, me in particular, I don't think I'm particularly good at that. And so one thing, like people, like I'm, I, I find that I'm really good at identifying rookie, or excuse me, uh, running back value. And so what I would advise people, like I'm not great at doing matchups at receiver. Like I, I struggle doing that. So I just sort of go to my strengths. And uh, fortunately, I think that my strength is borne out in what the analytics would tell you about about the positions, which is that. I don't think the down weeks from Brandon Cooks hurt you as much as people think. And I think this, the stability is more important because the, the long-term stability is more important because it, it adds to what you can do roster construction-wise. Right? If I'm trying to beat Brandon Cooks with, I don't know, you name it, Robert Foster or, I don't know, Marcus Valdez-Scantling to talk St- about – Sterling Shepard or, or something like Sterling that. Sterling yeah. Shepard, right. Uh, that means I have to roster more receivers, and if I'm rostering more receivers, like, A, I have to pick the week that it's actually better to start them than Brandon Cooks, which is tough to do. And, B, I'm giving up the upside of, of having a running back that I know exactly when to start. So, for me, like, I own Brandon Cooks. I think he was my most owned receiver across my dynasty leagues this year. It was pretty close with him and Sammy Watkins. Like, I probably played him 100% of the time. Like, I just, that, to me, that, that build makes a ton of sense. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, too. And if it's... And I love that you brought up the fact that you're playing to your strengths. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't fully understand. And I'll I'll admit that maybe a lot of why I'm pushing back at you with some of these questions is because I'm more of a redraft player. So I'm not maybe fully understanding the value of that year-to-year consistency that Cooks is providing. And I'll have to think more about that, you know, as I move forward with my dynasty rosters because... I, I, I'm not good at it. Like I, it, it is not one of my strengths is managing a dynasty roster. So um, yeah, I, I love that you put it that way. That's, that's really good stuff. 
we've been talking a lot about wide receivers and running backs, and this is a 2QBs.com podcast. I have to steer it back towards quarterbacks. And uh, another excerpt that you sent me from the book talked about the volatility of quarterbacks across various age ranges, you know, like when, when they're drafted, like what age they're at in a current season. And I'm curious as to what you think about this past crop of rookie quarterbacks for 2018. Like, a lot of them were very young. Like, Darnold was, what, the, the youngest starter uh, ever? Um, and with that in mind, I'm curious, just of those rookie QBs from this past draft class, which do you expect to pan out long-term, and which of them would you be more inclined to expect to flop from? Um, I loved Baker Mayfield coming out. I think every metric that you looked at loved You and him. everyone else. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's funny because I was like, it's people people were like, oh, he was the consensus one. I got futures on him that were like 30 to one, like to be the, the number one pick in the in the draft. And that seemed like, from a historical basis, like he fit in with, metrically, with guys that are just, that yeah. are, that hit as number one quarterbacks, like the like the metrics loved him. Yards per and, attempt, adjusted yards per attempt. You could look uh-huh. at all of it, and it was yeah, it was insane. He he was clearly the guy who should have gone number one, but there was so much disinformation. I feel like coming out of that draft, like everybody wanted to try to convince them they were going to take Darnold, or then it was going to be Josh Allen for a minute. I think they were just trying to see what people might pay for that pick, but. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Like I, I'm sorry, I cut you off, but uh, go ahead, continue no, I on Baker. About- I could talk about Baker for days, so you don't need to worry about interrupting me. Um, I, I loved his profile. And, like, you look at, you know, the three big stats that I really look at are yards per attempt, touchdown to interception ratio, and touchdowns per attempt. And he finished in the top 10% uh, going back to 2000. And there's only been, like, I think there's been, like, eight of, eight quarterbacks that have done that. And I think five of five or six of them, the basically the outliers are Bryce Petty, uh, Tim Tebow, and AJ McCarron of uh, the players not to go number one or number two in the draft. Like it's, it, I mean, Cam Newton, Andrew Luck, I mean, Mariota was one of them. I mean, all of these guys go high. And so when people were talking, oh, Baker's a later first round pick, I said, just historically speaking, now is the NFL really looking at that or is it a proxy for something else? I'm not exactly sure, but from a historical perspective, they have valued that in whatever form, you know, they evaluated in, you know, it matched with draft pedigree. So I I looked at that and I said, man, he's, he's the real deal. He was my quarterback one. I thought that this year was, I spent basically from at UTHdynasty.com. We do, we do player profiles and we do we study a bunch of rookies we go we started in like october last year looking at individual rookies and i spent i don't know 6 months ragging on Josh Allen and i just didn't think Josh Allen was was that good i didn't think he was a quarterback that even warranted a number 1 overall pick um, but then the market just became so crazy. It that, was toxic, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, and honestly, like, again, cost is key with every decision I make in life. Like, you know, hey, my house isn't for sale, but if someone walks up and knocks on the door right now and says, hey, I'll pay five times what you bought for it, like, I'm telling my wife we're moving, right? I mean, that's not a, I mean, that's an easy decision for me. So cost is key. So when a guy like Josh Allen, like, when you were getting him in, 
as a quarterback five in this class and and super flex to start two when you were getting him in the second round of rookie drafts like that was crazy or when you were getting him like and start ones like you were getting him in the I got him in the fourth round in a in a draft and I was like just from a historical hit rate perspective that's crazy um, and you look and saw like this year I, I actually recap. Uh, Buffalo games and Detroit games for football guys. So, and I'm a Bills fan. So I watch every I'm week. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I'll tell you what though, like, you know, I, I didn't love the pick, right? And in fact, I may have been like in tears a little bit when they made the pick, but I'll say this is he's a highly variant quarterback. And so is is the, is the chance that he's going to bust pretty high? Yeah. But you know what? Like if, from an NFL perspective, I love what they did with him, right? They He threw the ball down the field a ton, right? There was four games that were – there were six games where a quarterback averaged uh, per attempt. He threw the ball 13 yards down the field or more. And I think – excuse me, I think there were seven of them. I think one was Ryan Fitzpatrick, two were Jameis Winston, both right around like 13.1, and four of them were Josh Allen uh, that were above 15, so they were making these huge throws down the field, and I loved it. Like from a from a sort of embrace the variance perspective, I loved every minute of it because it was fun to watch. They actually the way they structured their team, like I hope they doubled down on it because they like guys like Robert Foster and they brought in Corey Coleman who busted, but they you know they get Deontay Thompson and Isaiah McKenzie, these speed demons that can sort of stretch the field. It's a great fit for him. Now, does a team do that long term? Like. You know, they should, I think, with Josh Allen um, and embrace that huge ability to make big plays down the field and rely on a good defense. The question I have about Josh Allen is the formula that I think for success, I think, is unlikely to be employed long term. So I have questions about him long term, but I think he's fascinating to watch. Like, it's not it's not necessarily pretty, but it's fascinating from a game perspective. Yeah, and I think a lot of the Josh Allen haters really undersold his athleticism, like how fast he was, how big and strong he was. And we, we knew he had the big arm, but what he could do with his legs was definitely something that not a whole lot of people were talking about leading up to the 2018 season. We saw that play out in a really cool way for fantasy, right? He was highly productive down the stretch because he was running so much. And that's probably my biggest concern with him long term is that it seems like the strengths of his game, like running the football, you know, standing in the pocket or, or holding the ball longer to make those big throws, like is going to open him up to potentially more injury. And we already know he's not hyper accurate. So like injury plus inaccuracy kind of is a recipe for a quarterback to bust in my mind. Now, with that said, I would love to see him prove me wrong. And like, like you said, it was a lot of fun to watch them try to make that work with him this season. So it's a fascinating case. If I had to, you know, plant my flag, I, I would expect him to bust, maybe not along the lines of a player like Tebow, but kind of in that vein where like what he does on the field is really unique and really cool, but I just don't know, like you said, either based based upon coaching tendencies or based upon, you know, how the league adapts to the player, uh, if that's sustainable long-term. And that's what worries me about him. Um, what about Darnold? What about Lamar Jackson? And what about Rosen? Where, where are you at on those three? So I, got, I actually was fortunate enough to see Darnold in person this year. And I got to go to see the Jets uh, at home against the Texans. And he made two throws in, in that game that were just uh, – both of his touchdown throws were, I thought, fantastic throws. And, you know, the question I have is how good of a quarterback coach is, is Adam Gase? You know, it, I tend to give him some leeway for what happened in Miami because – 
He didn't I have quarterbacks. Think, right. He didn't have quarterbacks. Plus, like, Tannehill was hurt, and he was constantly hurt, and it was just – right. He didn't get a good draw there, right? So I, I tend to be a little bit forgiving on that. Um, so I, I like Darnold's upside quite a bit in terms of being a, a long-term quarterback. Now, for fantasy, is he gonna is he gonna run? You know, is is that, you know, what's their offense look like? I have some questions about I think that maybe the upside of it, but I I think that he's gonna turn into being a solid NFL quarterback. Rosen's interesting to me because. You know, I, I think I liked him probably second most to Mayfield coming out last year. I don't, you know, he has a he has a bad year this year, and he got dealt a bad hand. Uh, again, there weren't many weapons there. There, I didn't think their system fit hit, fit any of their weapons particularly well. Like they, they one of the worst O lines in the league too. Like they did yeah. him no favors with that roster. Right. Yes. I mean, it was just, it was going into a terrible situation. And so that, you know, that can stunt a quarterback's development. Um, so I have, I have, you know, some, I guess some worry about it from that perspective, but I think Kingsbury is going to be, I think he's going to be super quarterback friendly. You know, I think it's a bold hire. Um, you know, I think they're probably going to embrace Rosen and I, I'd love to see that. I think that, you know, he's a quarterback that I liked a lot coming out and he had some bad narratives coming out too and I, I thought a lot of that was unfortunate i thought a lot of it was unfair i thought there was a lot of typecasting around you know around him from a, a socioeconomic religious perspective there was just some things said about him that you know i, I just thought weren't fair to him as a person uh, what, was, what was the name of that article about narratives that you referenced earlier that narratives yeah. are terrible yeah exactly. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and so i mean i just as a that's I sort of reject those when they happen. I sort of try and bet against narratives. I mean, Mayfield had a lot of that stuff too. Like all, all that nonsense with him and Colin Coward. It's just like, look at what he does on the field. Look yeah. at what he does as a player and evaluate him based on that. Don't talk about all this other nonsense. Yeah. And you know, the Coward thing was, was I thought ridiculous because if you watch, like there was a, there was a play and I, I think it was in the, the championship game where, where uh, he makes this big throw down the field. His guy makes a catch, basically gets, gets tackled in the I mean this was like a 35 40 yard play down the field in, in the in when he was in college and you know he threw the pass he was the first person there I mean he must have run 50 yards and been the first person to his teammate the whole Mayfield being a bad teammate thing like I look at that you know and we were talking about, yeah and we were talking about like life beforehand like that's exactly the type of coworker that I want right the dude that's like hey like that's the guy that like I got your back. You know, that's that type of coworker, that type of person that that is he's transformative for an organization. So I, I thought that going in. So I, I again about Mayfield. So we're, side, I just, we're sidetracked again. <laughs> yeah, I could talk about Baker forever. Um, but no. So Rosen, I think a lot of that stuff was unfortunate about. Um, one of the things that concerned me about uh, finishing up with, with Lamar Jackson was I thought I thought he was better as a passer. Uh, in college than he was given credit for. He falls all the way in the draft, and, you know, they, the Ravens take him, make him their starter, and then don't throw with him, right? They, they try and do all these, they're running things, and he's good at that, yes. But I don't think there's a lot of longevity for that, and it concerns me a lot that he you know, how guarded they were with him because there was people like Matt Waldman who really liked him as, as a thrower yep. that, that we didn't see them trust him. And so I think that that, and plus he falls as far as he doesn't in, in the draft, 
in a league that is just craving quarterback talent, like that, that concerns me quite a bit. I think about his long-term perspe- perspective. So I, I'm, you know, I haven't redone rookie ranks or anything like that, but I think that I'm more, I was bullish on him. And I think I'm, I think him and Allen are much closer to each other than they were for me pre pre, you know, preseason. Yeah, and one of the key things to remember with Lamar Jackson getting drafted by the Ravens is that they could have taken him earlier, and they traded back multiple times before they actually you know, pulled the trigger and drafted him. And so I, I think not only does that show that they had concerns about investing in him, but so did every other team, right? He was the last pick of the first round. So many other teams passed on him, and like you said, it's a quarterback-hungry league. If he was really that desirable a prospect, like maybe he should have gone higher and maybe the fact that he didn't is a red flag and and that is one of those instances where draft capital comes into play and we we have to weigh that to some extent now how much do we weigh that that's it, it varies from player to player from situation to situation i think and i'm sure you get into that stuff in your book um i want to talk a little bit more kind of general dynasty strategy with you and uh, sticking with the quarterback position what is your strategy for startup drafts uh, with qbs um, and, and start one quarterback leagues, uh, a lot of it matters to me in terms of, um, the roster size, right? So I, I, a lot of the decisions that I make are before the draft to think about how I'm going to build my roster, right? So if I'm in a 20 to 25 man roster league, I don't, I don't necessarily want to be, you know, drafting three quarterbacks, right? But mm-hmm. the problem is, is it's tough. It can be tough in dynasty to find guys to stream. So, I actually don't have a huge problem with people going earlier at quarterback. Then I'm not a huge late round quarterback guy, just from a roster construction perspective. Um, so, if you were to take a quarterback in the top eight rounds, you know, somewhere between round four and eight, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I, I really don't. And I think it sets up your roster, right? Because you can only you can roster one. You know, you can you can take some situational picks later on. Like a lot of, you know, in a start one league, a lot of what I like to do is um, is to target quarterbacks in round three rookie drafts because historically they're good values there, and they fall right. Yeah, so, no one wants to draft QBs in a start one rookie draft. They just they completely ignore the position for at least a round and a half every year. And and that's that's like bad. Like if you look oh, at it the, totally is yeah. Oh, if you look at the if you look at what quarterbacks have done, it just being third round rookie picks like Mahomes, Watson, Wentz, Goff. I mean, all of these guys, right? I mean, Russell Wilson. If you want to go back, I mean, the the people that you could have hit on just by saying you know just blindly taking the best quarterback you think's available in the third round of your rookie draft your hit rate on that's super high compared to the receivers that you're taking are probably day 3 receivers like that's a huge that's a huge upside bet compared to what you could be taking so that's a lot of how i think about the position uh, in terms of building it um, one thing i do you know part of the thing i sent you and i think when you look at quarterbacks as they age i mean maybe it's the i'll probably call it like the Ryan Tannehill Teddy Bridgewater rule, right? A couple uh, must have been what summer of fifteen. I sort of had high hopes for them coming into you know into full on starters and being viable fantasy players. But that that 
age range for quarterbacks is dangerous. So if you are, you know, the the mid twenties are really dangerous because now that's obviously weighed down a little bit by your rookies who don't play, right? So your Kyle Allettas and you know your your day two guys are sort of dragging that age down in terms of positional finishes. But sure, yeah. if you if you sort of match it with Right. So that's a baseline. But if you look at sort of how quarterbacks age through that, right, there's some busts. Guys flame out. Right. I don't well, want to. Super- that's when teams figure out that the guy that they drafted isn't good. Right. And yes. Tannehill is a pretty good example of that. I mean, he yeah. got derailed by injury to some extent, um, I think, especially because a lot of his game was built on. Uh, athleticism, like he was a converted wide receiver, he was a good runner of the football from the quarterback position. Um, I, I'm, I'm that, that's a great what if to me as like a, an avid two quarterback player is what could have become of Ryan Tannehill if he had stayed healthy. Uh, anyway, we're sidetracked again, but yeah, totally agree that that's generally the part of a quarterback's career. It's it's make or break, right? Either they're going to make it or they're not. Yeah, for sure. And I don't want to make. Like, I don't want to have to rely on that as being a starter. Like, that's a dangerous age range. Now, the exceptions to the rule would be if, if the person's already produced, right? So Watson is an exception to that. I've seen it twice now where Baker I think he's will a, be, right? Baker. Baker's an exception to me because, you know, just his profile and everything is an exception to that. Um, but I don't mind being a little bit, you know, I think people overstate age at the position in terms of old guys not producing, right? I, I think, you know, we see guys like, you know, people are concerned about Rodgers getting older. I don't, I don't, I don't really, it doesn't, it doesn't scare me, honestly, because you see these guys, I mean, Brady's what, 41. I mean, that's not a common story, but you see generational quarterbacks play into their late thirties and they're not, they don't really become less productive, right? So, you know, that's a that's a huge part of what I would what I would sort of advocate is is looking at those guys, you know, guys like Philip Rivers, right? I mean, it's not super sexy, but it's highly effective in terms of being a stable being a stable asset. Now, if I'm playing quarterback premiums, um, you know, I, I I like to say when I'm playing a premium whether it's two tight ends or whether it's two qbs or super flex i like to attack the premiums right i don't want to be left behind and you know like we talked about with running backs like you can make up running backs through some sort of committee right playing you know six seven eight guys saying i need to get 13 weeks out of these guys i can figure it out at quarterback it's tough to do that and the cost is a lot higher so I am much more likely to, hey, let's get let's get two safe quarterbacks early. You know, let's get three in the top six rounds for me. And if I'm playing start two, I'm a little bit less aggressive, I would say, in super flex. Um, You know, I don't maybe need a fourth per se. You know, I don't need a fourth starter. Um, But. And and when I'm starting two, I, I, I feel that I am. So I like to really get I like to hammer the the premium positions when I when I'm playing in leagues with premiums so um, and again I, what I would say too is to point towards you know we hear these and we'll hear it just just listen it's already happening on some of the big mainstream podcasts but you'll hear you know, all these conversations about who are the day two quarterback values those guys don't really pan out and so one thing I, I really point towards is like the Dak Prescott example the Brady example those things are super rare and you don't see right. Dak Prescott probably wouldn't be a starting quarterback unless everything fell the exact way that it fell. Right. Romo got hurt. They had no other options. He played really well. Like he was a good metric prospect. All of these things like he, he fell on it. They happened to be a good team. You know, like it was all of these things sort of went perfect for him. So he rolled 
the exact right number. Whereas, you know, seeing guys like, I don't think you're ever going to go into a season where you think Kyle Lalletta is going to be the starter, right? They're going to draft someone. So Dak broke the mold in terms of lower pedigree guys hitting. Same with Kirk Cousins, right? So one thing I would point towards is like later in a draft, I would rather have guys like, you know, Josh McCown's maybe not a great example of this because he's getting older, but guys like that, guys like it's magic fits. Yeah. Ryan fits, Ryan fits magic. Yeah. fits magic. Uh, you know, him and, um, and guys like, you know, as, as much as this pains me to say playing Gabbert, right. These guys keep bouncing around the league, um, as, as primary backups. And it's not probably anything that's going to be super long-term in their starter ability, but from a week to week, you know, you said it earlier and it's true, even in dynasty, especially later in drafts, it's a week to week game. And so the leverage that, that a guy like any of those guys can have is, is pretty high in terms of a, a weekly thing where you, hey, he might be a starter for you, or better yet, he might even be taking away, you know, if you're strong at quarterback, but you've got five or six starting options, that's other people that aren't, are, that don't have starting options. So I really think being strong and at the premium positions, especially a quarterback, is is really the way to go. Yeah, that, that is a drastic difference between two-quarterback redraft and two-quarterback dynasty is the value of hoarding the position. Uh, this is something that uh, my old co-host Josh Lake tuned me into when I was first getting into dynasty is how much it can actually help you to you know, hoard those backup guys, even if it's Josh McCown, even if it's Ryan Fitzpatrick, even if it's going to be like Tyrod Taylor or Joe Flacco this next upcoming season when they're almost certainly not going to be starters to open the year. Well, Flacco might be, depending upon where he ends up. But but you, you get what I mean. And the, the real value there is that there are only 32 starting quarterbacks, whereas, you know, we can contrast that against like running backs. You've already talked about how you like to hoard running backs. And I think that is the optimal strategy across most fantasy football formats, you know, assuming standardish scoring. Uh, but, but the difference with running back is that teams employ multiple guys on a week to week basis. Like the Patriots are going to run out Rex Burkhead and Sony Michelle and James White, if they're all healthy for some number of stats, uh, snaps, some number of touches. Whereas, Tom Brady is probably the only QB who's going to be touching the ball on that team in any given week if he starts the game and stays healthy through it. Um, you know, Taysom Hill is the you know, the very wild exception, not the rule. And so if you do stack up enough guys at the quarterback position, not only does that give you plenty of options to go from, it gives you a better chance of finding you know a Russell Wilson or a Kirk Cousins or somebody who's going to come from that lower pedigree like Dak Prescott and on top of that, it gives you trade leverage, right? If if enough guys get hurt and you end up with all the starters, then you can start flipping those guys for places where you need to improve your team. It's it's really, uh, I, I think, way more viable to hoard the quarterback position in Dynasty than anywhere else. Um, what what do you think about it? Like, what, what do you think are the, the cons, I, I guess, relative to the pros I just talked about of hoarding QBs? Well, I think it's, I think roster size is a big constraint, right? So if, if, if you're playing in a and I I had a I did exactly what you just talked about in a trade in a draft that I did last summer with my co-host over at UTH Chad Parsons and we took quarterbacks it's a 40 man roster so it was start two quarterbacks I think it was start two tight ends oh yeah stack them up yeah and we drafted a quarterback from basically round I think we drafted from round 30 to round 40 I think we drafted eight or nine quarterbacks <laughs> That's and. Amazing. 
Yeah, and you know what? Like, it, but they were they were highly viable, right? I mean, it was it was Chad Henney and um, you know Matt Schaub. If something happened to Matt Ryan, Brock Osweiler, we we could have had as a starting option. Blaine Gabbert, we had as a starting option, right? Sean Mannion was one of the guys. Um, you know, if something happened to um, Goff, Brian Hoyer, right? So we just basically picked off you know, highly valuable offenses with guys that we thought were stable possibilities. And we got, you know, I don't remember how many weeks we started them, but we got, you know, probably 10 starts from those guys cumulatively NFL starts from them this year. I think we maybe started them one or two, one or two of those weeks, but that was stuff that our opponents weren't able to right when they lost Tannehill or when they lost, you know, Mariota, they didn't have the backup And that from a warp perspective, right from a, and especially in deeper leagues and especially in the premium leagues, like when you can implement those types of strategies that, that hurts your opponent, your opponents that people you're playing against, it hurts them a lot when they have Mariota, then they don't have a backup, right? If so, you know, what, whatever their third option is, whatever their, maybe their fourth option is, right? That That's crushing them because they can't, they can't put in, you know, Blaine Gabbard or whoever their backup may have been because you have them. So you, like you said, trade leverage and just from a structural advantage, it puts us at a huge advantage. So yeah, uh, I was big, uh, we were big into that in terms of that being a strategy. I think that's a great strategy, especially uh, the constraint on that would be if it's, if your rosters are tight, you know, if you're playing 25 man rosters, it's tough to employ that just because you, you need other positions too. Um, but if you're playing 35, 40 man rosters, like that's, I love that strategy going deeper. Yeah, definitely. Let's um, pivot away from QBs. Uh, just in general, who are your favorite rookies that are going to be coming into the NFL for 2019? Do you have uh, some top players that you're looking at for rookie drafts, um, or maybe even just some intriguing players uh, for the late first or maybe even later rounds in rookie drafts? Yeah, so I haven't done a ton of studying of, of rookies yet because I had, you know, I was doing the book launch. I've basically just started to get into it. I've been looking a lot at running backs. Um, I really haven't studied any receiver tape. Uh, from a quarterback perspective, I would say that I think Will Greer is is really interesting. The, the Dwayne Haskins, Will Greer, and Kyler Murray all have really interesting metric profiles. So I think Will Greer is going to be the least sort of talked about of those three but to me his his metric profile is really interesting in terms of his historical comps um kyler murray breaks the mold in terms of yards per attempt for his college career he, he broke my model he's the highest in terms of that stat so i mean his his comps are are going to be really good as well again the size is going to be a concern but i think those three are interesting i think greer is probably going to be a player that i'm going to be on just because i think the cost is going to be right um just out of curiosity, what were yeah. some of the comps for Greer? Um, well, the, he fits in that same. He basically uh, he hits the same that that ninety ninety ninety. Uh, he's just below ninety, I think, in touchdowns to interception ratio. But he was like in the high eighties of of you know the top the top ten percent basically. Um, and I just like when those those guys are really interesting to me from a historical perspective. I mean, the the misses basically are uh, Bryce Petty. Uh, AJ McCarron and Tebow, um, but the hits are really high. I mean, Baker was one of them. Andrew Luck, Cam Newton, Mariota. Um, there was one other one that I can't I can't remember off the top of my head, but they were there was like five or six of them that were all top two picks in the uh, in the NFL draft. So he sort of aligns with them. I don't think that that's going to happen for him. But that from a arbitrage perspective, when when 
the cost goes down on guys that have similar metric profiles. Uh, that that is something that really interests me. You know, I don't think he's the same as I don't think he's in the same class as an Andrew Luck. But from a stats perspective, I think it's I think it's an interesting production conversation. I think it's going to be a good arbitrage opportunity from from those pr- profiles. Um, from the other positions, I mean, Josh Jacobs is someone that I really like. Um, I running back, correct? It's running back Josh Jacobs out of Alabama, and again, he sort of fits. Alabama's tough to measure any sort of productivity because they're all so good. Um, so, you know, his, his market share data is down is his sort of age based production. It's all down because there's, you know, they're employing three running backs, uh, but his tape combined with, you know, his, his, what he's done on the field when he's had the opportunity to do it has been really good. And he's someone, you know, there's people talking about, I jokingly said when he declared that he was going to be the one, I just put rookie pick one oh one um, on his declaration when he, when he declared, I, you know, that's a little bit bold, I think in terms of, I was half saying it sarcastically half saying, I think that's where the market's going to get to um, because I think the, the market's just super on running backs right now. Um, but he's a player that I think from a risk and upside perspective warrants a top half of the round, if not higher round one rookie pick. I just I just think that that's an appropriate valuation for him. Um, it's, it's a name I've heard, and I'm not yeah. really clued into rookies at all at this point, which is yeah. why I asked the question in the first place. But the fact yeah. that I've heard of him tells me that the hype is probably going to be there. It's it's going to be there, and I think it's it's a you know it's a it's definitely a risk type of. I mean, if it's a risk tolerance type of question um i am much more likely to take high risk at running back than at receiver it's an inherently Um, risky position we that's why we that's why we shotgun spread our approach to to picking those players right exactly exactly and i think the upside of those guys is is the upside of a guy like josh jacobs is is really big it's not as big as barkley but it's big um you know any of these running backs that go in the round one of your you know the upper half of your round one of rookie drafts. I mean, that's, they have historically high upside players. Um, he's a guy I'm interested in. Damian Harris, I think is a guy that's being talked down a little bit right now, which is nice for me. I mean, I, I like his tape quite a bit. Um, is he another running back? He's another running back from Alabama. Yep. Um, so he's a guy that's interested from, uh, deeper down, like the running back perspective. I think again, a lot of what I, a lot of what I, value is the cost of a player but some a guy like alexander madison out of boise state he's a running back that i think has some interesting uh, parts of his profile that i think is getting virtually no attention right now so we'll sort of see how he tests and he's got all those questions but he's a guy that i'm tracking real close um you know, I think I think a lot of it is really comes down to draft pedigree in terms of at running back. It's sort of who falls in that second to third round rookie rookie draft range. Those guys really interest me. That's a lot of where I'll spend my time from now until until May. Um, the receiver position I haven't done a ton of work on yet, so I don't I don't really want to point any of your listeners in the wrong direction. Um, I would know. I think that there's some questions about how a guy like Nikhil Harry how he tests. So that's going to be interesting. Um, but tight end, I think, is, you know, one thing I put in my book is that sometimes we make it really difficult on ourselves, right? So we, we just don't – I think we look at the the trees while not taking a step back and looking at the forest. When the NFL values a class, like, we should follow suit. So, you know, 
Josh Allen was the example this year, right? There was five quarterbacks drafted in, in the first round. Josh Allen falls like significantly below all of them. We should be on Josh Allen, right? That's I just think that's good process. Um, tight end's going to be similar this year, I think. There's going to be a, it looks like it's going to be a pretty good tight end class. So tight ends in round three and round fours of rookie drafts, I think that's it's going to be a good, especially if they're day two picks like that. That's going to be a really good opportunity. I don't know exactly who it's going to be yet, but it looks like there's going to be a lot of names. And again, I haven't done film study on the tight ends yet, but that'll be my next step after running backs most likely. But that's sort of how I'm processing it thus far. Yeah, good deal. And I mean, we have a whole off season to kind of dig into the details and, and figure out which guys we really like. And so I figured this is probably a good enough place to wrap up the episode. Um, tell folks uh, where they can find your work in the off season and uh, plug the book one more time before we uh, get out of here. Yeah, so uh, you can find my my work. I'm doing premium. We're doing four prospects a week at uthdynasty.com it's about 15 minutes per guy we you know we just um we we wrapped up we did each week we did a, a running back roundup we would talk about all 32 depth charts in the nfl we would spend about two hours doing that a week um so we've backed off that fortunately and now we're on to some prospects so we're doing four a week just just looking at different guys and sort of how they fit metrically checking out their tape you know doing a whole analysis on them so we're getting into I think we're up to I think we've done 12 so far of, of running backs so we're sort of moving quickly in that um, you know and you can check out the book at um, you know I'll be making some more podcast appearances this is my I think my first stop in the first, second stop in the on my on my book promotion tour so it's been fun to you know talk with you obviously it's oh, been man. this has been great I'm honored uh, even if you did say that this was not a a mainstream podcast how dare you no, it's it's I you know I, I I like talking to people who want to talk strategy, and I think that that's a lot of how you think about fantasy sports. And I think that coming at it from a team building perspective and sort of how you you know the the one of the the things that you talked about earlier was the opportunity cost. And I think that I don't think people think about that, right? I don't I, I think that that's an underappreciated facet of what of picking players. And so you know that that's a great th- those are great strategy topics that i think are under serve so i'm really glad we got to talk about it but yeah you can find the you can find the book at analytics of dynasty.com um you know i've got some content up there one of the things that i haven't been doing a ton of is releasing content from the book because i want the people that bought the book to get the full advantage of it because i do think it it is helpful um i do think it it will move your win rate it'll make you a more profitable fantasy owner and particularly in dynasty but i do think it has that applicability in other areas um and so there's some stuff up there again the brandon cooks article is one of my favorite i talked a lot about james connor this year as being the uh, of a profile that we should have been more on um there's some content up there about that um an article that i entitled fat tales which is based off a sam hinkey quote um talking about james connor so you can pick up some of the you know some of my work up there in terms of those things but yeah check out the book uh, analyticsofdynasty.com you can order now, download it immediately, um, get digging in while we've got a couple weeks before the Super Bowl. I mean, get your prep going for, for startup and rookie drafts and everything like that. Analyticsofdynasty.com. And if you have questions, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'll talk to you in DM on Twitter at McNamara Dynasty. Yep, very cool. And that's spelled M-C-N-A-M-A-R-A Dynasty uh, for the Twitter handle. Jordan, uh, thanks a ton for coming on, man. This has been a really cool conversation. I, I've 
it, I like having dynasty folks on because again, I'm still learning. Like I'm definitely not a dynasty expert by any means. I have, you know, my own thoughts and strategies as it pertains to the format, but getting somebody who's a little deeper in it like you is not only good for me. I think it's good for the listeners. Cause I, I think, um, in terms of this podcast, dynasty is probably a little underserved. So, um, I, every once in a while I like to go a little bit deeper on it like this. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, last thing before we go, give me your Super Bowl prediction, man. Well, I, I picked the uh, Saints and the Chiefs, so I don't so really know. So did I. It's tough to pick against against Brady. I don't know. I, I really I love Sean McVay. I love sort of everything that he stands for and all of the innovative stuff I think he's doing. So um, I'm going to pick the Rams, but it's tough to pick against Brady. I don't think I can, in good conscience, pick a first time quarterback and a first time head coach in the Super Bowl just because it's such a circus, man. Like I, I really I think that there's something to having been there before, like that it goes beyond just being in the playoffs, right? Or being in a championship game. Like the Super Bowl is a totally different beast. You have that two week lead up. So um I, I'm gonna take the the Patriots here, but it, it could go either way. I think I saw earlier um Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders tweeting that this is the closest their analytics have come to trying to predict a matchup. It was like one of the teams was favored by like it was like 50.2% to 48.8% or something like that. And so I, it, analytically it's shaping up to be a really close contest and I can't wait to see who does win the game. But if, if you put a gun to my head, man, I'm not picking against Belichick and Brady. Give me the pats. Yeah. It's, it's tough to, it's tough to bet against. We'll see, man. That's, that's the best part about this. We get to, we get to find out. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again, Jordan, for coming on. Uh, listeners, once again, follow him at McNamara dynasty, check out the book, analyticsofdynasty.com if you have questions for me i'm on twitter at greg sauce you can hit up the site at two qbs you can email us at two qbs at gmail.com in both cases the twitter handle and the email address you spell it out all with letters it's t-w-o-q-b-s please rate and review the podcast if you wouldn't mind that would help me out and as always thank you all for listening we will catch you next time adios adios